Welcome to the Cross Point Church Sermons. This sermon was preached by Pastor Scott Kappelman during a Sunday worship service. We hope you enjoy and share the message. This morning we got here as we always do at 8.30 and uh, we began to unload the trailer and uh, John Michael and his son Nick decided to take the first load on the elevator. So they entered on the bottom level with their load and got on the elevator to get off on this level so they could bring it up to the stage. And the elevator began to go up and down and up and down. And we could not stop it. And uh, they were on there for somewhere between 15 to 20 minutes just going up and down on that elevator. So if you are thinking about riding the elevator after the service, do not. Just do not do it. And so I want to say a word of thanks to um, John Michael and Nick for just being so patient. John Michael called us. He said, I'm sure you can hear the elevator, but we're just going up and down. Can somebody get us off? And uh, we ended up having to call the fire department and they came and uh, were eventually able to get it stopped on the top level, which is the balcony level. And we were able to get them uh, a crawl space to get off of the elevator. And so um, I just know that that's been a pretty exciting morning for the two of them. And I know they would appreciate your encouragement for just being the people who were designated for that job today. By God, I don't know how else to say it, but uh, we did get them off and they are safe. And we were able to get everything to the stage and get set up this morning. But it was quite an experience. We do want to ask if you're a healthy young man here today. And you would be willing to stay after the service because we cannot use the elevator. We've got a lot of big pieces that need to be taken down the stairwells. And so if you could hang around and help us make those loads to the bottom, it would be greatly, greatly appreciated. So please keep that in mind. Now, of course, Mr. Mike Lewis, our resident comedian, he said, when they get that thing open, we're going to let you, speaking to me, be the first one to try it again. And I know what Mr. Mike was thinking. If we can get him on there and get him going up and down, we can all go home. We don't have to listen to him preach today. Am I right, Mr. Mike? There you go. I thought so. So, But I didn't get on the elevator, and here I am. So we're ready to go. If you're new to Crosspoint, we have been talking about kingdom short stories. And uh, every week I've tried to recommend a book to you that uh, includes some short stories that might encourage you in your spiritual life. And so today I'd like to encourage you to read Philip Gully's Home to Harmony. It's a series of books. This is just the first in the series, but uh, Philip Gully is an excellent writer and uh, just tells a lot of beautiful little stories about the faith. And uh, if you need a good short story to read, I would encourage you to read Home to Harmony by Philip Gully. The reason I keep bringing up these short stories is I believe that's what Jesus was doing with his parables. He was just looking into life And he was trying to find some simple ways to communicate to people what the kingdom looked like and the kingdom truths that he wanted to leave with his disciples. And we talked about the very first week in this study how that when it comes to parables, we need to understand that if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you'll never understand the kingdom stories. They just won't make sense to you. And Jesus talked about how there will be people who will see these and hear these and try to understand them and they just won't get it. And so if you're here today and you've been a part of the last four, five, six weeks while we studied the parables and it hasn't made sense, that has probably been a sign for you that you're not a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. Because when the Holy Spirit, when you decide to follow Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit comes on you, he begins to illuminate spiritual truth. And so people who follow Jesus, 
who are under the power and influence and who are being directed by the Holy Spirit, they're going to get the parable truths that Jesus presents. But if you're not getting those truths, it is a clear indication that you're not genuinely a follower of Jesus Christ. And today would be the greatest day for you to decide to follow him because currently you are living a life apart from the Father and the only way to be reconciled to him is through Jesus Christ by giving your life to him. That's why he died on the cross to receive the punishment for your sins and so that he might forgive those sins and reconcile you back to the Father. And so if you're in need of knowing Jesus today, when we finish this service, I want to encourage you to come during the invitation and say, I need to know Jesus and I would love to have that conversation with you. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I hope these uh, weeks that we've had together to study the parables has been an encouragement to you to see the kingdom truths that Jesus has been leaving for us in these simple earthly stories. Well, today I want to ask you a question as we get started. Who is the most shrewd person that you know? Who's the most shrewd person that you know? Now, I might need to define shrewdness, and so I went online and looked at several definitions this week. I finally decided to use the one from the Oxford Learner's Dictionary, when it had the word learners in it, I thought that's for me because I'm still a learner. I need to know some things. And this is the definition of being shrewd, clever at understanding and making judgments about a situation. It's a person that has good understanding, can see the situation, has a good understanding of it, and knows how to leverage it in the right way. Now, I want to go back to that question I started with, like, who's the most shrewd person you know? Maybe we need to put it in terms of your family. Who's the most shrewd child that you have in your family? Because you probably have one. You remember Dennis the Menace? He's pretty shrewd. That's a great example of a shrewd kid. I've got a cartoon frame of Dennis the Menace this morning, and he is speaking to his neighbor, Mr. Wilson. They were the next door neighbors. And this is what Dennis says, in case you can't read it at the bottom. Miss Wilson, he's speaking to Mr. Wilson. Miss Wilson says it's easy to drive you crazy because it's a short drive for you. I like that. Dennis the Menace was shrewd. We might ask it this way. What's the mo which is the most shrewd pet in your house? Some of you have dogs and you have cats. Some of you have mice and hamsters. Maybe there's somebody here who has a snake. I hope not. But nonetheless, like which one of your animals is the most shrewd? Is it the one that seems to know how to always get the food that he or she wants? And so I'm just wanting you to think like who is the most shrewd person that you know? Today, Jesus is going to talk about shrewd stewardship shrewd stewardship. And that's going to bring us to Luke chapter 16. Now, the way this is divided as we jump into the text today, Jesus is going to speak the parable beginning in chapter 16, verse 1, and he's going to go all the way to the first part of verse 8. And that's going to be the parable. Then we're going to take a quick pause, and then we'll get to his application, which begins in chapter 16, verse 8, and the second part of verse 8, and it's going to go all the way down to verse 13. Some people who are in scholarship want to separate those two items. They think the parable is a standalone unit. Personally, as I've studied this more and more, I think the application that we find beginning in the middle of verse 8 to the verse 13 goes together with the parable and explains the parable. And so what I want to do today is kind of just walk you through the parable, then talk about the explanation and give you some, some truths, four of them at the very end that we want to talk about today when it relates to shrewd stewardship. So let's start with the parable, verse 1. 
Now he said to his disciples, notice who he's speaking to. He is speaking to the disciples. There have been some parables that we have studied up to this point where Jesus is speaking to a crowd that included both followers of his as well as people who were not his followers. That's why Jesus said in the very first parable that we studied, as I share these parables, some of you who are listening are going to get it because you're followers of mine, but some of you will never understand it because you're not followers of mine. But in this particular instance, it's not a crowd mixed up of unbelievers and believers in Jesus. It is simply he's speaking to the disciples So if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this parable has application for you. It has application for me because I'm a follower of Jesus as well. Now, he said to the disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So when we jump into this parable, it is spoken to the disciples, and there are two main characters. There is a rich person, and he has hired someone to be a manager of his possessions. And that's all outlined for us in verse 1. There was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So verse 2 gives us what happens next. So he called in the manager and asked, what is this that I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Basically, the rich man calls in the manager. He has heard through the grapevine that this man is stealing his money or misusing his money. And when he calls this manager to account, he essentially says, I want to know what you've done. And in addition, you're fired. You're done. It doesn't matter what you tell me. It doesn't matter what excuse you provide. You're done. You're fired on the spot. And then we get to verse 3, then the manager said to himself after being fired, what will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? And then I love the next couple of phrases. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. Now think about those two statements. The guy basically says, look, look at my body. I could be the illustration of that. He says, look at my body. I'm just not strong enough now that I've been a manager, to go back to the level of just pure, hard labor. There's no way I can go dig ditches. There's no way I can go dig foundations. There's just no way I can go out and dig in the farming area where we've got crops. I'm just not strong enough to dig. And in addition, I don't want to go beg. I don't want to go stand on the corner and beg people for money. That's just not who I am. I think that would be insulting to my pride, especially after being a manager I mean, it'd be one thing to have to go dig, which I'm not physically able to do, but it'd be another level below that to actually have to go and beg people for money to survive. And so his wheels are turning. What can I do to survive being fired by the rich owner? And that brings us to the next verse that we find in the scripture. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will come, will welcome me into their homes. So in verse 5, he summoned each of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master, he asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Well, take your invoice, he said to him. Sit down quickly and write 50. Essentially, this manager who's been fired goes to the wise rich man's debtors and he says, look, you owe a hundred? Let's just make that 50. Just pay him 50. That's all. This is my last act while I'm in this role. I'm cutting your debt from 100 to 50. So 50% off. We're giving you a 50% off sale on your debt. 
I guess if Joe Biden had been there, he'd cut it all out if he had been in student loans. But nonetheless, it's just olive oil. And he just said, I'm going to cut it from 100 down to 50, and I want you to go pay my master. Apparently, olive oil must have been a little less expensive in that moment than the next phrase, because the next guy doesn't get the same deal. Next, he asked another, how much do you owe in verse 7? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. Now, the first guy got 50% off, like, I owe 100, I'm only going to pay 50. The next guy has wheat, so olive oil must be not as expensive in that time period. And so he says, I owe wheat, I owe 100 on the wheat. And he says, well, just take your bill and cut it to 80 and go pay my master. What is he doing? He's trying to make friends and influence people so that when he gets fired, somebody will give him the right to come live with them and survive so that he doesn't have to dig and he doesn't have to beg. And notice what Jesus says in verse 8 in the very first part of the parable or the last part of the first section here. The master praised the unrighteous manager. Why? Because he had acted shrewdly. There's the key word, shrewdly. Now, this is where we have a little bit of attention because when we read this story, we're wondering, okay, did, did Jesus actually kind of commend somebody who was dishonest? I mean, when I read the story, I'm not seeing a lot of honesty here. Here's a guy who's been fired. He knows his days are numbered. And so to take care of himself, again, he's not looking out for the rich man that he works for. He's just looking out for himself. He knows he doesn't want to go dig. He doesn't want to beg. So what does he do? He cuts the price that these people owe. One gets a 50% discount. One gets a 20% discount. Now they go pay the guy and say, hey, your manager said we only have to pay 50% or 20% off. And, and then the manager comes in before his rich owner on the last day. And the rich owner says, you know what? You've mismanaged my money, but you're, you're actually shrewd. Like you figured out what to do to take care of yourself. And it makes us leave with the question in our mind, like, what are you doing, Jesus? Are you taking somebody who's dishonest and elevating them and saying that we should be like somebody who's dishonest? And what I would encourage you to remember as you read those first seven full verses and then the extra part of verse eight is that Jesus never commends the guy's shrewdness. It's the wealthy owner who commends him as being shrewd. Jesus never says, hey, I want to elevate this guy as a kingdom principle here, as a guy that you ought to follow. He just tells the story because probably they had seen a story play out like that similarly in the first century. Maybe there was a rumor mill on the street of something like this happening. And again, Jesus is just taking something from life bringing it over to the kingdom and using it as an illustration and saying shrewdness sometimes is a quality that's needed in the kingdom. And that brings us to the application. When we begin in the second part of verse 8, Jesus begins to apply the story that he has just told. Here's what he says. I just want to read it and then come back to four truths that I want to give you today. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. 
Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also in right, unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No one can serve two masters since he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he concludes with this, you cannot serve both God and money. And when we read that, I'm sure there are a lot of questions for you, just like there are a lot of questions for me, like, Jesus, what in the world? You've just told this crazy story of a guy who's dishonest, who kind of becomes the central figure. He's commended for being shrewd. And then you go into a discussion about shrewdness in the kingdom. What does this mean for us? And that's what I would ask us this morning. Like, what, what do we need to learn in terms of kingdom truths in 2022 from this parable and what Jesus said as the application? Now, I'm going to give you four. Here's the first one, and it's this. Money has an inherent uh, power to it. It has an inherent power that tends to be negative unless it's redeemed by kingdom purposes. Now, here's why I want to talk about this for just a minute. Some of us in the room today think money is neutral. It's just neutral. It has no power. It's just, you can either use it for good or you can use it for bad. But do you know that in scripture, every time money is discussed, it always has a power. It has a power. This guy in the story who's lost his job realized the power of money to leverage it for his own purposes. So what does he do? He goes to people who owe the master a large amount of debt. He says, what do you owe? A hundred. A hundred bushels of olive oil. Well, take your bill and cut it to 50. He learned the power of money in the moment. It's gonna le- he's going to leverage it, though, for himself. Then he goes to the second guy. What do you owe? A hundred bushels of wheat. Well, cut that to 80. This guy understood the power of money and how it can be used most often for negative reasons. Some of us in this room are so, we're just so in this loop of thinking, money's just neutral. It doesn't have any power. It has power. And Jesus is trying to remind us, money has an inherent power. And if you're not careful, it's going to drive you in a negative way unless you turn that money into something that can be used for kingdom purposes. When you think about the money that you're earning, you're putting in your bank account because of your job. When you get your paycheck, don't, don't just think, oh, that's just some money going in an account. There's a power there. And you're either going to use that money for powerful things that are not of God, or you're going to use it for things that are of God. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach us with this first point. Money has an inherent power that tends to be negative. It tends to be negative unless it is redeemed by using it for kingdom purposes. Number two is this. Because money has this inherent evil and it's negative, this negative power, it's not really evil, it's a power. We need to be sure of how we can become a, we need to be aware of how it can become a master that competes with our commitment to Jesus. If this is a power, that's my whole point. It's not negative, it's a power. If it is a power, then it can compete for our affection for Jesus. Notice what Jesus says in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, 
since either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despised by the other, you cannot serve both God and money. Why? Because it's a power. It's a power. And if it's a power, it can draw us away from loving Jesus. I just want to speak real freely. And this is probably going to be for people who are in the upper echelon of age in our church. Right now, we've got people in our church who are very consumed with watching the stock market nonstop. Why? Because really what we've done is our heart's affection has been put into trusting our material resources so strongly that we cannot imagine not having those resources and having to trust Jesus fully. Now, is there anything wrong with building wealth? No. Is there anything wrong with accumulating money for retirement? No. But because money is a power, and typically it goes to the negative, this is what Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom. Money has a power, and it usually drives us to something negative. If we don't redeem it for kingdom purposes, all of a sudden it becomes a God that we worship and we trust in more than trusting in Jesus. I would encourage you if the stock market is making you anxious, uneasy, paralyzing, then you may be letting the power of money become your God when Jesus all along says, trust me with your life. You know what? This is hard for us in the American culture. Understand that money has that kind of power. It can just suck us in that direction. You remember Jesus told another parable about a guy who became rich, and what did he say? He didn't say, how can I turn this toward the kingdom? What did he say? Let me build some bigger barns. We just keep building bigger and bigger barns. Why was, why was he doing that? Why was he so consumed with just more money? Because it's a power that wants to pull us away from trusting Jesus. So what was the man building the barns thinking? If I can just build bigger barns and accumulate more wealth, then I will be good for my life and I can be satisfied and I can relax and I don't have to worry about anything because I will have what I need. Well, guess what? When you've decided you've got what you need, you don't need Jesus. This is why I think Jesus tells us a parable about money. Money's one of his top subjects. We don't like to talk about it, but Jesus talked about it all the time because he said money has an inherent power that typically goes negative if we don't redeem it. And before long, it's drawing us towards something that becomes our God and we get our affection off of Jesus. And that's why Jesus ends this whole section, you cannot serve both God and money. You can't do it. It's not possible. The third truth that he gives us out of this is our faithfulness in handling money, our faithfulness in handling money has a direct correlation with how much kingdom responsibility God gives us. So how we handle the money that has been entrusted to us has a direct correlation to how Jesus can use us in his kingdom. Now, let, let me show you why I say that. Would you go to verse 16 and uh, ver chapter 16, verse 10 and verse 11? Here's what I want to show you. Whoever is faithful in very little 
is also faithful in much, and whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? Our wealth, if it becomes a God, and and God is watching our lives and He can see that it's become our God, He can't use us in His kingdom work like He wants to. So He's watching how we handle this, this power that's in our hands. He's watching us. And if we're not handling the power correctly and it's corrupting us, He can't go send us out to be kingdom citizens and do amazing things for His glory and making the gospel known in this world. But if we're able to handle things that are powerful and handle them in the right way, we know they inherently want to drive us toward the negative, but we have figured out, okay, God, I see the power of this and I don't want it to consume me. I don't want it to mislead me away from you. I'm going to make sure that I handle this correctly. When he sees us handling power correctly, he can then entrust us with kingdom power to go do the kingdom things. You see how that works? That's why I say money's a power. It's not neutral. It's a power. This is why Jesus is saying, you better handle it correctly because I'm wanting to give you kingdom power, but if you don't know how to handle power, it will corrupt you. It'll make you prideful. It'll make you arrogant. It'll make your trust be deviated from what it should be. It'll be over here when it ought to be in me. And so I need to see how you're handling small amounts of power through your money so that then you can come back over here and serve with kingdom power in kingdom ways. And I think that's the thrust of that. The final truth is this. Jesus' followers need to learn how to leverage money for the kingdom. We need to learn how to leverage money for the kingdom. Would you go back to chapter 16, verse 8? In the middle of that verse, Jesus says, for the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. What does Jesus mean by this? He simply means that people who are not believers often understand the power of money way better than those of us in the kingdom understand it. And what are they doing all the time over here, the people who don't know Jesus? They're using the power of money and leveraging for whatever they see is most important. Most of the time, it's themselves. Don't we see this in Congress? Just think about the way our political system works. You've got people in Congress or in state legislatures that have huge amounts of money and power at their disposal. What do they normally do with the power through the money that they have the ability to appropriate? They're usually looking out for their own selfish interest, or they're usually using it to further a cause that they think is important. Why? Because they understand there's a power here in the money, and I'm going to leverage it for the way I want it to go. And Jesus says, the people in the world, they understand the power of money better than we do. And what Jesus is trying to say to us as kingdom citizens is, I need you to understand the power of money and begin to leverage it for the kingdom. I wonder this year for Lottie Moon, remember Lottie Moon Christmas offerings coming at the end of the year. It's where we support our Southern Baptist missionaries. 
I wonder if we could collectively as a church give the same amount to Lottie Moon that we have collectively invested in the MSU athletic department. Now think about it. Think about it. I'm, I'm kind of being on your toes a little bit. Am I against MSU athletics? No, I watched the game on TV a little bit yesterday. Did I listen to it while I was in the car? Yeah. Do I enjoy going to the games? Yeah. But when we add up the price we pay for tickets and the money we spend at tailgates and the money that we've spent to join the Bulldog Club and to secure the privileges, if we were to take that for this entire building today, I wonder what that amount would totally be. My guess is it would be a pretty significant amount. Do we give the same amount that we've just given to the Bulldog Athletic Club to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, which goes to advance the gospel in the nations? We don't. We don't. Why? Because we've let the power of money, which usually drives us away in a negative way, away from Jesus, consume us, and that is what we want to do with our money. And Jesus has given us a parable about a man who's very shrewd. He's not a believer, but he's acted in a shrewd way to benefit himself. And he's just said to his disciples, I need disciples in my kingdom who will leverage the power of money for the kingdom. And the reason the kingdom's not doing a whole lot is because the people that are in my kingdom have not learned how to leverage it correctly. You see, all these weeks we've been talking so far, we've primarily been talking about the kingdom as though it's something you got to get into. Like you got to join the kingdom, join the kingdom. I've been saying that for weeks. Like we want you to be a part of the kingdom. But then we find Jesus also tells stories where he says, if you are in the kingdom, it's going to change how you live. And that's when we go, uh-uh, I don't want that parable. That's not the parable I want. I don't like that one. And Jesus said, yeah, some of the parables are about getting in the kingdom, but some of the parables are about changing the way you live. And if you're going to follow me, it's going to change how you handle your money. Because in some cases, your money has become your God. And I alone want to be your God. That's what Jesus says. Do you feel uncomfortable? You should, because I have my own issues related to money, and that makes me feel uncomfortable too. But here's what I want to share with you as we close, move into the invitation. Whatever we've done in the past can change today because we can repent and say, God, I see it now. I have let the power of money corrupt the way I live in your kingdom, and I'm not really living wholeheartedly trusting in you I'm actually putting more trust and faith in money than I realize. But today I want to repent and renew myself in Jesus and nothing else. I'm going to trust Him fully, including with my money. That's what the invitation could be this morning, a time of repentance and renewal and a new understanding as we leave that our money belongs to Jesus too. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank You for the 
challenges that you give us in the Word. And um, as we move into the invitation, it's usually uncomfortable when we've been confronted with the reality of your kingdom. I pray that this invitation today would be used by your Spirit to pull some people to salvation. It would be used by your Spirit to pull others to maybe consider Crosspoint as a church home. But most of all, I pray it would be a time for us as believers to be convicted by the Spirit where maybe we've allowed our money to become a God that is drawing our affection away from you. May we repent of that this morning so that from this day forward, as we walk with you, as we live for you, we will trust fully in you and we will commit all of our money. It's your money, but we will commit it back to you to be used for your kingdom purposes. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand together as we sing?